Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan, and the author of Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. If you'd like a signed copy, you can order one from the Margate Bookshop. They deliver nationwide. Now, lovely listeners, I want you to have first dibs on this. My next novel, Careering, is out in March and you can pre-order the exclusive signed edition from waterstones.com. Signed copies are only available from Waterstones and they do sell out. I'd hate for you to miss this one. Emma Gannon says Careering is raw, emotional and really, really funny. Lauren Bravo says the writing is perfection. It's painfully perceptive and will speak straight to the heart of anyone who has ever felt like their own career is playing hard to get. And I really, really want to hear what you have to say. Now, on to today's guest, Helen Oyeyemi. Helen is a multi-award winning novelist and short story writer. New York Magazine describes her as the queen of fractured fairy tales. She writes about the lyrical, the gorgeous, the curious and the strange. I knew I wanted to interview Helen when I read an interview where she revealed she pulled a three-day sticky and stayed off school to read Hotel World. That's the platonic ideal of your book guest. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. So, Helen, I read an interview where you talked about discovering Hotel World by Ali Smith and that you loved it so much that you spent uh, three days off school, perhaps with a cold or something, reading it. Um, I'd love to hear about how that book found you. Um, I just found it in the school library. It was on the carousel. And then, as now, I don't really read the stuff written on the back of the book or, like, the explanation of what the book is. I just opened it. I think somewhere near the middle and just read a couple of sentences and thought, okay, this is coming with me. And yes, from the moment that I began reading it, I just thought, okay, everything else um, is off the schedule. Like I have to, <laughs> like, this is my schedule until, until the end, which as with most books that you really love, I never wanted to end. And also I feel like maybe it didn't end and, <laughs> and I'm still <laughs> reading it on some, on some level. I have those moments, I don't know if that happens to you where I wake up and I think has has all of the stuff that happened in between 
um, adolescence and now just been a dream and I'm going to wake up and I'll be me and <laughs> me and my books like in my teenage bedroom again and there's something slightly nightmarish about that but maybe also I don't know like there are all of those teen movies about people getting to go back to their <laughs> to go back and redo things. I love that idea because I often think about the books I love and the characters I've loved and the life they've lived between the pages and um and something that I've loved so much about pieces is that sense of that's the way you take a reader with you and so much is inferred and so much knowledge is assumed but it just feels so collaborative and I love how much room you give a reader to have those fantasies within fantasies and I think it's something that that's what I love most about Ali Smith as well but this idea that everyone's running around in our heads all the time I think that that's my main thing about Ali Smith like if I try and explain um who and what she is as a writer I always think of her writing as something that suggests that everything can happen and and does happen and continues to happen and there is a just a really joyful continuity even through the dark patches it's like there's something there's there's light flowing through continually in a really consistent pattern um that's also really open yeah so just like open loops yes you both make me think of you know dark shadowy forests but there is sunlight through the trees coming through the branches and to to write about things that are so dark and complicated and human with such a lightness and such a a, to find a thrill in the weird um and I suppose that kind of you know comes back to the you know myths and fairy tales and to write about the dark but look at what is odd and what is absurd I don't know I feel like I get told a lot that I do myths and fairy tales and I'm a little bit like oh I don't know about that because I just like stories in general um because stories themselves are weird like especially the made-up ones I think that a story that acknowledges how made up it is and acknowledges that you are consistently making a decision it's like what you said about collaborating with fiction which you do have to do you have to suspend that disbelief you have to fill in um certain blanks with your own experience or your own fancy or your own whim or your own um interpretations you have to it's a kind of work that is also play and you're not really sure why you're doing it or why it's essential to do it but you know that you need to like there's that kind of forward drive um that fiction has and it's something that I've always I just wonder what it is and so I think that most of my stories about stories are trying to sort of prod and poke fiction a little bit and make it declare itself or not necessarily explain itself because I don't really like explaining stories but um (laughs) just show a little more of its facets and um why it is and yeah just all of the because when you think about made-up stories they are and their power over us, actually, and our power over them. Um, you just have a lot of questions. <laughs> I don't think I was nearly as cool or sophisticated as you, but I remember having that experience when I read, um, it was E. Nesbitt, and it's one of the Samiad books. And I think Oswald, the narrator, talks about himself in the third and first person. And it's halfway through, he lets you in on the fact that he is this character he's been telling you about. And I had that moment of, <gasps> you're allowed that's so playful that's so cool I that's such a and I didn't feel like I'd been tricked I felt I you know like when almost when you're watching a magician and um I'm very easily 
tricked by sort of by how things are done that again I had that like oh that's permission to do something that I've not seen before Mm -hmm. and it's it's a way of seeing it's a way of seeing a life story or any kind of story or even life itself that has been available and has been there all along but like we just didn't consider it as um yeah as a possibility or even part of the schema but um I think that that's when fiction gets most fun when like the walls collapse and then you realize that actually maybe the walls weren't even there in the first place (laughs) and everything was in fact um wide open I think it's so interesting to consider all of this in the light of the last 18 months which I think I felt painfully and relentlessly real and at the same time you know what you're saying about suddenly coming to and realizing that everything we knew had been a dream I think it felt like that as well were there any books that you found either gave you sort of comfort and space and a place to exist away from everything that was going on or any books you turned to that helped you make sense of what was going on I feel like I've never been able to get away from reality (laughs) or even to like I, I mean when people talk about escape I sort of look at them wistfully like what how where and how do you escape but I do think that there was a going in during the pandemic that was kind of interesting where it was a I think I, I made some kind of decision to meet all of the um all of the fear and the worry like I don't know if I would like recommend this as a way of coping with stress it's like let's have more stress but um for example I, I reread Camus the plague and like that was that was a super interesting book to read um in terms of everything from like the very first indications that everything was going to be absolutely terrible where you have the rats like just suddenly appearing dead on the streets um to the these really fine character studies of all the different people and their ways of trying to deal with the way with the confinement in their lives and the way that they had been separated from people they loved or were forced to stay with people that they didn't want to be around like all of the scenarios in this book which um kind of has this like slightly allegorical tone to it um just suddenly became so concrete and I remember taking like lots of furious notes and, and my main note I think that came out was that the people who were most wrecked and destroyed in the plague were the people who were demanding that things go back to the way that they were before. Like there was something just very relentless about Camus saying you need to, or, or at least the narrator, like not who knows, who knows <laughs> what Camus was thinking, but at least the narrator of the plague saying that you need to not necessarily burn all the bridges, but not even look back or expect the past to return. Like it's always like this forward motion that you have to make otherwise. And this is what happened to some of the characters. Like they stopped being allied with humanity and they became like servants of the plague, right? Like it was all about the ways in which they were stuck in their lives that was that was enabling the plague to continue to spread and spread and spread. Um, and that was kind of horrifying as well, because why wouldn't you want like all the all the good things that had supported and, and nurtured you um, going back and like forward ahead of you? There's just something that's not necessarily good <laughs> or pain free, um, but is human. And so that was that was interesting reading for me and also very like tortured involved reading. And then on the other hand, I was reading Moby Dick and just like absolutely loving it. Um, you know, they're out at sea on like this boundless world. And that's so weird and so spooky because the last person we interviewed was Dave Eggers, who said, I was asking him about his pandemic reading. He's like, 
wouldn't catch me reading the plague. Not really, really, really. No, thank you. But also, he talked a lot about Moby Dick and how he thinks, you know, for him, that is the book. It really, oh, oh, actually, and that actually makes a lot of sense. I feel like Dave Eggers' writing reminds me of Melville, like the way that it, he gets kind of caught up in knots of life and it's so delightfully, um, it's complex and chewy and I also feel like it's writing that can tell me anything about anything. Like it, I don't need to know about the specific topic. It's all about style and I love that about, I love that about Moby Dick. And I have to confess that Moby Dick is um, a book that I had tried to read about five or six times in my life before and had never made it more than a third of the way through. Um, and I guess it took a pandemic to <laughs> make me finally sit down and read Moby Dick all the way through. And so for that, I am slightly grateful to Rona. <laughs> well, I think, you know, that sounds like the, which I did not um, reread The Plague. I read a translation as a teenager and I couldn't tell you much about it other than I think I was um I was forced to read it but you know that's moving the sense of moving forward that we have to sort of look for look for progress and look for gains I've attempted Moby Dick and I've never finished it but you know you and Eggers I'm going to do it I'm going in yay so what were you reading during during those the crisis months (sighs) most of all I think I always want funny books I want even if it's not people aren't I don't want necessarily wisecracking one-liners but I want to feel as though I'm reading about characters who will know their way around a joke and um that's what I crave mm-hmm. I know I know what you mean I love what well, I love Woodhouse like who doesn't I feel like I haven't met anyone who says you know what I really don't like Woodhouse like he's always always gets a laugh from him but actually Woodhouse related um there's a Czech writer called Dianik Yerotka um, who I reference. So in pieces, there's like a, one of the characters gets a letter from um, an agency of, of, for restoring a sense of proportion in novel writing. And that's actually a con- that's an agency that exists in Yurotka, um, in Yurotka's book Saturnin, um, which is a little bit, I think, probably inspired by Jeeves and Musa. So you have this um, butler character called Saturnin, who's just like an agent of chaos. Like he shows up promising to bring order into your life and then, then everything is just um tossed up in the air and I love it so much but um one of the stories about the writing of this book Saturn in is that Yurotka basically wrote it um spent many hours in a bomb shelter writing it by candlelight and none of that comes through into the book it's like the book is this hermetically sealed space of um just mischief and um a mad capillarity I'm just I wonder about the state the state in which the state he had to enter to write that to write that way and well, obviously it was just wonderfully successful because it comes out so much in the book that it's a time outside of time in some way. And just incredibly, like I said, incredibly funny. I have to recommend it. I'm desperate to read it now. It, it sounds wonderful. And I guess that's what I was thinking, you know, this idea of escaping a book but that you can live in while you're reading it. And that's sort of a universe that almost seems more more real than our own when you're in the pages. And I think as well, what I love about um, B.G. Woodhouse is I think there are there are laws in his universe and there's a consistency. And I don't know how it's done where it's surprising, even though you know... It's that thrill, isn't it? Sometimes that we know something's funnier the second time around because you're, you're waiting and you know what you're waiting for and it's delicious. 
Um, and whenever I read P.G. Woodhouse, when I think about P.G. Woodhouse books, I feel hungry. You have about eight different meals a day. <laughs> I really greedily enjoy those amazing descriptions of meals and all of those rituals. Mm-hmm. Same. <laughs> well, I feel a little bit... Uh, well, I read Mrs. Beaton as if it's a novel, because I think that there's a lot of uh, make-believe that I have to do in order to immerse myself in that world. Partly, I have to be someone who cooks in my mind, because I don't cook at all. Like <laughs> and then I have to be, an, you know, a householder, and like, and it's the Victorian times, and it's like, I had just, there were just so many different layers that you have to inhabit to even get to the food layer of <laughs> Mrs. Beaton, and then once you're there, you're just like, it's a feast. So um, I'm just kind of reading. It's very, I don't read very many recipe books, so I'd have to say that that's the only one just because there's so much fun. It's almost like having to put on a really elaborate costume to go somewhere in your mind. <laughs> that's what it feels like. But I love that this idea that, you know, to go to leave our lives and be a person who, like, uses suet and, you know, <laughs> has such a straining cloths for flowers and I don't know what Mrs Beaton does but and well she makes it possible I think it's something to do with the assurance with which like she's just like I know that you know what these things are and lo you know (laughs) you are aware of these things um so there's that too but there's also kind of an implied organization of any household so it's kind of like all right you've got your cook and you've got your nursemaid and you've got like all of these (laughs) this structure in place um, so then you have to imagine those and like people, you have to people your imagining house with all of these people. I've just reread um, all of the Diary of the Provincial Lady books. and <gasps> I have those on my to be read. Re- are they very good? Oh, they're the most fun. And she's just gone up to wartime. And it's get really um, reminiscent of what has been happening here. And they're so funny and sad because the constant sort of motif in the wool one is everyone is looking for wool work and everyone is desperate to be useful and constantly phoning each other up and sending telegrams and saying, what can I do? And I just, just sit tight for now. There's nothing you can do, you know, wait to be called up. And she ends up volunteering in a canteen. But I love that she is constantly fretting over the management of her staff. And it's lovely because it sounds like the most unrelatable thing in the world. Right. She's not grand about it and she seems to live in fear of upsetting the staff and having them leave her and not being able to find anyone new to come in she's always saying when she goes out how nice it is to to have a lovely cup of coffee because her cook can't make a cup of coffee but she doesn't dare say so i, I think it's so it's so interesting about domestic power dynamics as well right? like it's, it's just not what you think it is from the outside <laughs> I, mean, I, st- I think I read a review of pieces that mentioned a sort of a Wes Anderson feeling and I look, that world of sort of the everything's grand and dreamy, but also that the, the sense of things being a little bit faded and it, there's lots of sort of bustle and effort and gleam and it's like an impressionist painting and if you really pull in, things aren't quite working as they should be working. Oh, I love that description of it. Um <laughs> <laughs> I think I was resisting the Wes Anderson comparisons because even though I love his films, um, I don't feel that Fuses came from such a visual place because when I think of him, yes, you think very much of like the details that kind of gleam out at you. Um, I actually went to an, an exhibition that he put on with his partner in, at this museum in Vienna 
um, that was, it was like being in a, <laughs> in a film of his, and that was wonderful. Um, that was, I just, when I think of the visuals, I think that he always has them on point, whereas with pieces, yeah, there's a fadedness, there's a slight slipperiness, there's a, well, I like the sense that if you look again, the thing that you saw, like, might not actually be there, like, that kind of, um, concept, but I was thinking in a slightly filmmaker term, but, um, actually more in terms of rivet. Um, this film of his mm. that I really love, Celine and Julie go boating, or it's just this kind of like wild chase through a story that begins with certain motifs, like some dropped cards or a dropped scarf, and you pick those up and see where those lead. Um, but on a train, <laughs> you have these this kind of trail trying to find out who people are through um, certain objects, certain memories that are arranged in relationship to each other. I think that's so interesting that. The idea that, oh, and I, you know, cannot speak for all authors or any authors, really. But I know when I write fiction, I feel like what I'm describing is much more tactile than visual. I can tell a temperature in a room or the way a sofa feels against your fingertips, but I couldn't give you any kind of architectural drawing of a room that people might be in. I can, it's like, you know, with that just waking up from a dream and you can sort of almost sculpt it with your hands, but you couldn't describe it. If I can't describe it, I'm in trouble because that's um, that's the main bit of the job. <laughs> oh, that's a, that sounds like an interesting place, like somewhere between the interior and the exterior. So, like you're just a little bit underneath the surface, but like not not too deep, not too far below. Sounds like an interesting position to inhabit. Do you give many books as gifts or do people give you books as gifts or do you feel as though people's reading is their business and their choice? You don't want to derail that too much. Very much. I I don't really like when people give me books or tea because <laughs> I feel like those are the things that I want to choose for myself. <laughs> and also I have a long reading list, but I'm sim- I'm similarly reluctant to actually even give book recommendations, which is like maybe weird. So a lot of people are kind of like, oh, you like books, what should I read? And I'm just like, I don't know, like, what do you like to read? Like, just find something like that. I don't, I don't know, like, it's a very, it feels like imposing in some way. Um, and also, I'm very conscious of um, to be read lists and I don't want to interrupt like the conversation between books that that need to be read like close together. I don't I don't know if that makes any sense whatsoever. But um, I re- I read this book quite recently called Testimony by Charles Resnikoff. It's like this almost five hundred page book. It's like a very long poem, and it's um about America, like a, about workers in America and what happens like these disasters that happen to them so he looked through lots of like court testimony testimony and um insurance claims and like people just trying to get some restitution for like what had happened to them on the job and he just like lists like all of these disasters that happened to them um in blank verse and this is so this is early 20th century happenings and just maybe seven or eight months before that, I had read um, Felix Fenion's novels in three lines, which were just kind of very, <laughs> because there wasn't very much space in his column as a journalist um, in this Paris newspaper in like 1906, 1907. He has to kind of boil disasters down to their essence and just like in three sentences, like dash them off. And just the like contrast between that expansion and like the detail um 
of what had happened to people and why and how, and then just kind of the distillation of it. Um, and again, the setting, different settings, America and France, I felt like those two books were in conversation with each other. And like, I had to kind of like read my way, um, outwards towards them. I think it would have, I would have been cranky if some, if there had been some recommendation of some book that had come between them. <laughs> so it was very important to like go book by book between those two. That's really interesting. Did you consciously think of those books as sort of a pair of being somehow linked or did you, did this sort of find your way? between them kind of organically um I think that I had actually purchased them around the same time but had somehow had some feeling that I had to wait I had to choose one read read it and then wait because it wasn't a thematic connection per se I think it was the way that they were both did something slightly novelistic so like turned turned reality on its head in certain ways mm. um but the source material was very much like it was the actual and so I thought oh okay this is not entirely made up so I have to be more careful with uh, <laughs> with these ones and I will I will take some more time with them um and then in between I was reading all sorts of things I read this really great novel it's a romance novel by Tessa Dare who I think is a lot of fun um called When a Scott Ties the Knot <laughs> <laughs> that sounds super fun <laughs> it's really cute um and it's my favorite kind of thing where you have a a lady who doesn't want to get married makes up a suitor and she pretends that you know she's passionate in love with someone and she just like makes up a name for him and then she sends all of these letters to some barracks that she just like makes up and she dashes them off and then, of course, a few years later, this person that she thought had made up shows up and is like, I got your letters and I'm ready to marry you. And she's like, this is the worst thing ever in the world. And I love it so much. It's, of course, that thing about something that you thought was not real or true, like having an actuality and a will of its own and <laughs> um, having plans for you. And I loved it so much. And, and it has absolutely nothing to do with terrible things that happen to working people. It sounds joyous and it is so, you know, kind of meta as well to have a character is trying to write her own story and her story turns on her. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> um, and it's what stories it. do. It's what stories do to all of us. Exactly. And I don't know, please correct me because I might be entirely wrong, but I do think I did read you saying you had a plan for these these people and you perhaps didn't want them to be as happy in love as they were. And they kept sort of doing their own thing and going off and, you know, falling in love more to spite you. Yeah, I had to, I had to give in to that. I mean, I was in a very bitter place where I was sort of like, okay, I'm the forever alone spinster, but I'm going to write a train book. And well, that was all I had in my mind to write a train book. And then I had to think about whether it was going to be a destination book or like what kind of story it was going to be. And there was obviously the great temptation to write a thriller, which I think pieces slightly turned out to be. But I thought that ultimately the best type of train book to write would be one where the destination didn't matter because it was all about who you were traveling with, which would mean that it, I guess, should be a honeymoon story. And then, yes, I thought, here is my chance to take revenge on people who are in love by, <laughs> by having this couple and, and having them having terrible things happen to them. And yeah, they were just not, I think that they were either so protected by their love from me and like all of my plans, or it just, 
is something um, there. Are, there's just a chaotic unfolding that's associated with love, and and they're just inside their circle, dealing with each other, and not really and nothing that happens to them outside of the two of them can really be so grim or serious. And so, yeah, I kind of kept trying to. I mean, you have to picture me sort of jumping around corners with terrible masks on, going whoa, and then just going, well, I'm <laughs> gonna have some tea, and you know, that's what it was like. And so then I gave in. I was just like, okay, you guys. And I think that, yeah, there's this interesting triangulation where you have to let the book be alive. So it's like between the author and the reader and, yeah, actually the characters themselves. Um, they have to be contradictory in ways that people outside of books are as well. <laughs> otherwise, there is... Um, otherwise, I, I think it just becomes sort of 2D. But, yeah, the very unexpected elements... I mean, when I think about pieces and I think about the structure of it, I sort of knew what the story was um, because there's that there's that little first chapter and it was kind of like, have you ever had a breakup? And then that kind of like submerges. But I knew that that was what the story was about all along. And then the rest of it was just kind of letting the characters get to, um, I guess, the core of it in their own way and, in, and at their own pace and in their own time. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. We'll be back with Helen soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Nothing Good Can Come From This by Christy Coulter, a memoir written as a series of essays about love, work, sobriety and humanity. Christie's writing is ferocious, raw, tender and extremely funny. It's the story of getting sober, but tonally there is nothing sober about it. It's a challenging exploration of how to start feeling when the world would prefer you to stay numb and silent. I love this book and I return to it often. Nothing Good Can Come From This by Christy Coulter is published by Farrar, Strauss and Giroux and out now. Now back to Helen. Are there, are there any any books that you remember sort of not enjoying and you revisited and thought, oh well, actually that's I, I get it now. I think there are, but I'm I feel like I've also just submerged. <laughs> I submerged <laughs> the first reading somehow. 
I mean, the most, the only one I could think of that was significant was The Great Gatsby, but I think that that was a difference between, like, reading it when I was about 17 and then coming back to it, like, in my mid-twenties and being like, this is tremendous, like, just... What made you come back to it? I think it's when other people just keep telling you that it's good, (laughs) which is what kept (laughs) happening to me. I was like, oh, is it, though? And then I think, actually, in a slightly reverse situation, I think about The Catcher in the Rye and how... I might not have loved it if it didn't hit me at the right age because I had mm. a similar conversation with a friend who read um, Catcher in the Rye for the first time in his mid-twenties. He was like, this is, like, what's the big deal? <laughs> and, I, and I actually think that it's sometimes it's just about the book hitting you at the right time in your life, like that's the case. And then there are other ones where you have different readings across the years and it just becomes deeper more enjoyable richer in different ways and in different directions that surprise you have this with emily dickinson i love reading her letters um i'm just i'm starting to realize more and more how funny she is like i always knew that she was um she had some jokes but it just comes it comes through more strongly the older i get with her and um I reread little women every year to see if it makes me cry still and it does i'm just like so uh, it just gets me in a place, that book. That would be such a love. I might have a, a sort of a wintry reread of, of Little Women. I was thinking about the, sort of this idea of the, the Mrs. Beaton universe and the, the things they do and that, the feeling of that book. But I mean, I think all the time about Meg's makeover. It's the only thing that jars me in that book, the slut shaming of Meg. I think it's most unfair. Ah, uh, we could. I feel. I feel like we could talk for a long time about the, the things that upset me about <laughs> Little Women, but also <laughs> the fact that you upset means that you care, which I think is very important. <laughs> <laughs> when I was younger, I did not understand the uh, Joe, Laurie, Amy triangle. And I was quite upset about Joe going off with this the German doctor who seemed so... I read the other stuffy. two books afterwards just to check because I thought, no, like, this this marriage is not going to last. Like, I was just kind of like, I think that Joe and Laurie are going to get back together. And they didn't. And I didn't understand it. And that's interesting. So there's some part of me that's always dragged back to, <laughs> to childhood by reading that. I'm just kind of like having a little tantrum that things didn't work out the way that makes sense to me. <laughs> Did you read The Testaments, the Margaret Atwood book? I didn't. I was talking to a friend about it recently because obviously, you know, I I was going to say, obviously I love The Handmaid's Tale. Did you? Perhaps it's not obvious. Um, I did. I Yeah, I did actually. It feels like a long time ago that I read it mm. and I'm almost afraid to revisit it because I'm a rereader, but like not always. So I don't know, but it might actually be... That might actually be a good rereading project. I don't think I'm giving too much away to say the Testaments almost had a happy ending. And I wonder if we're at a point, almost socially, where she couldn't do anything else. Like, no no darkness would feel greater or heavier than, than the one that we have. And, mm. and I think it's so interesting that now there's a feeling that there's a, a trend for characters who are unlikable but I don't really know what do you think that means like likable and unlikable it's a really tough one because I think that to an extent if a book is is really doing what it needs to do then it's kind of dissolving you into the characters anyway so like what is the what are the judgments that you can make when you are 
the characters. <laughs> like it's not that there, there should be a collapsing of identity there anyway. So a book that kind of invites you to like stand outside and say, well, I, I like this person or I don't like this person um, is either doing satire, which is fine, I guess, but um, I don't know if it's really what makes me joyful about fiction. Um, or it's just some kind of essay polemic type thing, um, which I'm not crazy about. I don't like when I think about the books that I've strongly disliked in my lives in the story and in my lives, <laughs> I guess I've betrayed my, in my many lives, like some of them, <laughs> some of the reincarnations. <laughs> um, when I think of the books that I've disliked in my life or like the stories that I've disliked in my life, it's been the ones that have tried to like make me think a certain way or um, have been so overtly didactic or fundamentally didactic. And I don't want that. And I don't want people to try new stories like that. And so maybe the likable, unlikable falls into that where it's kind of like here is how you can be a per here is a person that people like here is a person that should be liked here is a person that should be disliked and you know that kind of tone when I was younger I read Dickens that way and I really resented him for that and I felt you're calling you know people like sort of badness McNaughty man (laughs) but actually I'm really very 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 slowly starting to appreciate that he's sort of offering us so many philosophies to play with and borrow and so many different ways to live and that he calls for empathy in a way that as a, a grumpy teenager, you know, I, I didn't get. Mm. Yeah, he, de- he definitely has a lot more nuance. Um, and he's, yeah, he's one of those writers that's actually fun when you don't read him as literally and you're just kind of mm. more you're in a more relaxed stance with him. Um, he's definitely, yeah, I agree. I think that as a teen, I would have been like, ah, oh, Dickens, like it's it's all cardboard characters, but um, no, they're actually flesh and blood. I mean, you know, Dickens, Melville, Emily Dickinson, I think that someone needs to do some PR for those dead writers. And like, they're funny. I know this feels like homework and a should and a classic, but it's funny. This is the thing. Um, I think that, we're in a we're in a strange place with branding anyway. Like, is it is it not even possible to kind of undo the branding of, of um, certain writers? But at least with Dickinson, because I keep up on like the kind of writing that people, the things that people write on her. I feel like there are always new takes on her, which is kind of interesting as well. Although often the takes are based on. I mean, sometimes it's just that a person is determined to find a certain thread in her work and then, like, pulls that out. But, like, I think a lot of them are starting to acknowledge. So there's a lot of stuff about the way that she refused refused to finish poems and the way that she always had, like, so many different variants and would never confirm mm-hmm. the official variant. And just the ways in which she um, escaped the final form, like, always. Um, that I think allows a writer just to just continue going and going and going um, through centuries. I've been reading about Susan Sontag in the pandemic. I read the Benjamin Moser biography, but that I also just read, and it was a delightful brief afternoon, um, Sigrid Nez's book about her, Sempre Susan. I just bought um, that. Oh, how weird! I think it's, yeah, I think Sigrid Nunez is definitely having a moment because um, so many people have also recommended... What are you going through? Like, um, 
but in terms like they've described the book so differently so it was like three different people that described it so differently that I thought okay I need to have this book but, um, but yes I'm first user. I've not read that but I was electrified by the friend and I think someone else mentioned it and it was in like not what I was expecting it to be at all but sorry but um Sebra Susan um the vividness and the, the vignettes and I think you know all things considered Nunez is very generous about her and she's trying to be accurate but she's also capturing a woman that I believe a woman who was always trying to define things while always resisting definition herself mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean I love the, uh, the essay against interpretation is kind of like ah oh, I love it so much um but yes I think that that's I would share that that view it's, it's kind of there's a, there's a doubleness um that must have been actually really difficult for her to negotiate <laughs> there's a uh I guess it's like a memoir or an autobiography I love uh Diana Vreeland the old editor of Vogue and it's just called DV I think and it's part of a sort of group of um the only other one I can think of is um, a memoir written by an artist called Francis Rose, um, saying life. But they're both memoirs that seem, at least in part, made up. <laughs> Diana Vreeland sort of writes her own myth magnificently, but also she is a, an old school editor in that way of sort of saying this way of this way of doing things is absolutely right she had the why don't you for harpers and why don't you wash your child's hair in champagne and why don't you have all your luggage <laughs> painted pink um i'll tell you why not <laughs> but you know i think she sort of came from an enormous amount of wealth and privilege and to some extent you could say that about susan sontag too but how these women who in the 20th century were so confident and could contradict themselves and have that confidence in their tone it makes you it makes you think about what it means to be of your time I guess in a way um and also maybe they were able to just sort of turn down their awareness of critique or of their audience um in some in some way that's actually really difficult for a lot for a lot of the rest of us to access or maybe I think that and this happens when I'm at a good place with writing fiction. You just are writing. It's just, you're like a verb and a noun at the same time. And you just, I don't know, just social social stuff doesn't come into it in some way. Um, and you're writing from a different place that is still you. Uh, I don't know. All of this is very nebulous and I think is... Um, the weird thing about writing and reading that is like just indescribable. I love the idea of being a verb and a noun at the same time. It's, and it's, it only happens to me when, yeah, when I'm writing, reading, watching a film, it's always narrative. It's always narrative. Um, and so I think that that kind of exquisite position of authority that you're in especially when you're writing a memoir or like something that so you're writing about your life which only you know and so you get to do whatever you want <laughs> and then you can um yeah you can make up a lot of it <laughs> which is what happened <laughs> well then I'm thinking of memoirs that I really so I really love Diana Hill, and I always think that she it makes me wonder like how she lived because it feels like she lived very rigorously like as in going through every emotion like meticulously 
um, in a way which I don't often do. Like I'm always setting feelings aside and thinking, okay, I'm going to feel that later and then just never getting back to the feeling. <laughs> Whereas it feels like she went through everything and then wrote about it, like with that similarly clear-eyed perspective. Um, but I mean both. And then I think about Leonora Carrington's um, mm. Down Below. All of these takes on a life, like whether they be... Um, like just very very out there or like very or very concrete um there is that kind of similar acuteness that they have in common like it's just whatever it is it's very acutely that thing that sharpness and I wonder how much of it is I think a lot about the closeness of writing and reading and how I wonder if memoirists in particular write like readers to have that sense of editing and it's in a way really really generous you know you don't firstly I think no one should be obliged to tell the story of their life in any terms other than their own you know no and if they they want to twist the story maybe what they invent is more real than the truth exactly so maybe there's something about the decision to even tell this um that is the truth that is the truthfulness and the honesty in and of itself like that is the offering that it's kind of like well this is what happened i'm using the language like it might be coded in some way but this is i'm, I'm telling you i am telling you and like that kind of offering diana Atthill, there are many volumes of those memoirs and also they're just different topics so I'm trying to think of the most recent one I read I think it was I think it's called so much as a letter but it's just so it's the most devastating one and then she has ones that are kind of fun like step where it's just like she talks about her publishing career and like just what she learned about <laughs> what she learned about writers and what she learned about publishing through it and it's it sort of dances a little bit um she's a, and she's one of those she's one of those writers that just does goes into so many arenas um but like it's always it's like somebody who has or you see in magazines where they're like this is the perfect day to night dress and like you can wear this <laughs> everywhere and I, I feel like that's what Diana Hill does like she just is herself but like in all of these different places and situations <laughs> she is very Sontag very Vreeland mm. <laughs> I have to look into this, um, especially the DV sounds great. <laughs> I think constantly about, I always get her mixed up with Thomas Hardy heroine, um, in The Europeans by Henry James. I think it is Eugenia, but it might be Eustacia. And the greatest compliment that she's ever been paid is that she's not a beauty, but she holds her head like a pretty woman. And that beauty can be mind. And you can have that power if you just sort of cosplay it. You know? I, I almost feel like the power is actually in the recounting of that. Like, it, I feel like it dismantles the concept because if something, if something is, actually is, can it be cosplayed? <laughs> can it, I mean, does beauty in fact exist then if it can be imitated? Like, I feel like there are a lot of questions about that. But I almost feel like all of the power has been in being able to well, pinpoint the outlines of the story and, and say, okay, it's a little bit ragged around the edges here and, and then start to sort of peel it back <laughs> like like wallpaper that is um that needs to be changed. <laughs> and that, you know, I mean, nothing is 
what it seems and there is no truth and there are no absolutes and what's the difference between holding yourself pretty and being pretty and maybe there is none and maybe it doesn't matter like also because I feel like one of my favorite things about Jane Eyre and why I loved Jane Eyre so much is because so she has that outburst right like even if I'm ugly ugly people have feelings and they're important too like that I was like yes like finally this is this is me and Jane together like so what if I'm not like I had um oh my gosh as, as a teenager on the bus like all of these stupid boys would come up to me and be like excuse me did you know that you're very ugly and I would start to say yeah I know thanks like at a certain point I was just kind of like so what because what are you supposed to do like if someone tell, are you supposed to then just like go off and die like so what like but and so finding that moment in Jane Eyre was invigorating um and I think that trying to make us preoccupied with whether we can be and whether we are or not beautiful is just we have to be prepared to go to you know the inverse of that and just be like okay what if I'm ugly what then like can I continue to live my life can I have feelings can I have love can I have like all of the stuff that beautiful women have yes (laughs) and so it's fine I think it's really interesting that that is considered to be one of the worst things you can say to a woman especially and I think you know the word fat is so loaded and that's what I heard a lot growing up and it wasn't and the word itself should be neutral but there's so it never I don't think it ever will be I think there's so much weight there for want of a better word no it's a grenade that you throw it's kind of like they say something that's like very valid and then you go well you're fat and you're and there's kind of like oh you know the nuclear bomb has been dropped like why and why is this the uh, it's just one of those things and then yeah you feel that instinct to sort of comfort violin saying oh you're not fat or you're oh you are beautiful whatever but it's just kind of like what actually so what if I am those mm. things? And I think, you know, back to Catcher in the Rye, maybe, to, you know, I've forgotten to, to hear that, to be liberated and to be, you know, a young woman reading those words. And it's such a call to arms. And it makes me think of, like, of Courtney Love and Kathleen Hanna and Bikini Kill and Riot Girls. And when they talked about that, and again, Courtney Love, inconsistent, spent an enormous amount of time and money on arranging herself in a way that sort of fits with conventional beauty norms but then singing there's no power like ugly Mm. or even just that there's no there's no power like rejecting (laughs) the current power scheme like being being told that these are the only ways in which you can succeed or or have value and just trying to come back to your own to your, I mean, you're kind of like, well, what do I think? What are my own fundamentals? I don't use Facebook anymore. Um, other social media, sadly, I have not liberated myself from. But having those moments, think there are people who are completely consumed with what this means, but all the value that they are giving it, you know, they are giving it. It's not an objective. It's not a state. It's just, you know, there are no facts. And the power that comes from, thinking, no, this is irrelevant to me and I'm not participating. Right? I mean, what if you disconnected? It's... Then wouldn't it be less powerful? Like, <laughs> Helen, I have so many things I want to talk to you about, books and beyond books. But um, before, we, before we go, I should probably bring it back to books. Uh, what are you excited about reading next? 
Well, now now that we've talked about the sacred Nunez, I feel like I need to push Siempre Susan further up the to-read list. Um, what did I have next? So I finally saw that Violetta Gregg has a new book. Well, it's not so new that this is the thing that I feel bad about because I loved Swallowing Mercury, her short story collection, and I've seen another book of hers called Accommodations, um, which I'm very excited about as well. I do not know her, but I'd love to read her. Is the new book short stories as well, or is it a novel? I think it is. Um, so the thing about Swallowing like there is something about the perspective of it, like in, and its tone, which is kind of very wry, <laughs> of just about everything, about growing up, about where she grew up, the times in which she grew up. Um, Rye, but also granular, and I just loved it so much. Um, and so I guess that accommodations is like the grown up, Violetta, and so I'm looking forward to her takes on um, <laughs> on the here and now. Both really, really great names, and I love that idea. Rye and granular. That sounds like my perfect sort of book. Um, makes me think of Tessa Hadley, who I adore. I'm always banging on about. <laughs> yes, I think that. Um, we need uh, we need more of all sorts of writing but and then this is the other thing that maybe it all comes down to with all writers that it just comes down to their individual voice and you're just luxuriating in that and there's no there are as many voices as there are writers right and we just need more of everything <laughs> yes yes and that's the thing I think about likability and relatability and a character can be anyone and do anything and you know, do the best things and the worst things and have the the most obscure or the most obvious sort of life. And it's the voice isn't that propels you. Yeah. And I think that there's something ineffable about those things. And it's about, I think we read books because we want to spend time with people. Yes. And there has to be something likeable and relatable, but it doesn't have to be anything that is of other than a, a feeling that comes from that the voice it's a voice that you pay attention to it and it somehow seems to pay attention to you simultaneously it's really interesting it's perfectly put that is gorgeous um and as much as i want this conversation to go on forever i think that is the perfect note to end on thank you so much thank you for having me uh, and it was a wonderful conversation huge thanks to helen Pieces is out on the 4th of November, published by Faber and Faber, and it's beautiful. A weird, shimmering, moving love story that gave me a disturbing and joyous sense of literary deja vu. I think you'll love it. You can follow us at YBooked on social media. Look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We love it when you share the podcast with your friends and thanks so much to everyone who has left us a five-star review. It helps other people to discover us and new books. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Helen at acast.com slash booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. We'll be back next week. For now, I leave you with this from American Wife by former guest Curtis Sittenfeld. Being a reader was what had made me most myself. It had given me the gifts of curiosity and sympathy, an awareness of the world as an odd and vibrant contradictory place and it had me unafraid of its oddness and vibrancy and contradictions. See you next time.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.